Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read just the first, about the first 10 verses in this passage to kind of get us into the mood of what we're looking at. Remember that Paul is writing Titus, uh, instructing him how to straighten things out, supposedly, well, I shouldn't say supposedly, in the churches there on the Isle of Crete, and to appoint elders in every city. And that's a major, major responsibility. And uh, at beginning of chapter two, Paul is sort of this giving descriptions of the church and dividing up into groups. He divides up into groups like older men, older women, young women, young men, bond slaves and masters. And he's going to be talking about these different groups and sort of giving a little bit of a distinguishing, maybe a distinguishing characteristics or areas of focus for each one. Not that they're all different, but sometimes there are some areas of focus that may need a little more specificity. So here is Paul in his writing. He says, but as for you, this is in contrast now to those false teachers and those that must be silenced that he's been talking about. He says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. This is the important statement because he's he's telling Titus that the focus that we are going to be looking at are the things that you're communicating that are in harmony with sound doctrine, or you could translate that healthy doctrine, doctrine that is in conformity with the word of God. And um, he mentions the same kind of thing down in verse last part of verse five, where he talks about doing certain things so that the word of God will not be dishonored or belittled or whatever. So I guess the bottom line is these are things that are to be consistent with what the scripture teaches. And that they are things that therefore are important, not only to the to Titus and to the people of the churches in Crete, but also to us. They are preserved here for us, and so we are studying those things. And so he says here, verse 2, older men are to be temperate. Uh, the idea of, of uh, when he talks about temperate there, the idea is to be sober, perhaps, uh, abstaining from extremes. Dignified would be honorable, perhaps, uh, august, reverent. He says they're to be sensible and... and um, this is, he's talking about older men. All of these things would apply to all of us, really, but particularly if you get older, sometimes I think you can sort of lose focus here, maybe to slow down or turn your focus away. And so he's just stressing that, that, that you don't want to do that. Sensible, which we will look at again today with the women, is a, has the idea of self-discipline, of being temperate, um, sound in faith, that is healthy in faith, the word love there is the word agape, which is a volitional love, and that's a love that is produced by the Spirit of God. And sometimes, um, some we get older, we can become more bitter rather than more loving. And the Holy Spirit should do the opposite in our lives. The Word of God should do the opposite in our lives and make us more loving and more concerned. And then the last thing is perseverance, hupomone, meaning to stay under. Older men perhaps are tempted as we get older to think that the world owes us a living and that we can sort of kick our feet back and take it easy, uh, maybe to venture out into other realms. And he's just reminding us here that we're in this for the long haul. It's not, we're not going for just a small period of time. 
and then we replace that commitment with something else. This is a lifetime of commitment. I've thought a lot about that and thought about my life and am I contributing to building the kingdom of our savior? It's easy to, for me to be preoccupied with myself and my ease and my comfort, uh, my enjoyment of the things that I have and um, to be, uh, to take lightly the fact that we are here for a short period of time to contribute to and to work toward building up our Savior's reputation and his kingdom and his leadership and his influence, both through me and through others. And all these, these words that we're looking at here, at least for me, sort of have that same motivation that we want to focus our lives and our efforts and our attention on our Savior and on his exaltation and on the, the building up of his kingdom of his work and do you understand what i'm saying to be fruitful in the sense that's one of the things that the parable of the sower that spoke to me was that the the sower went out to see sow seed and one of the the areas of the soil that the seed fell was also infected with weeds and when the gospel began to take root there were other distractions wealth and and fame and other things that began to grow with that and sort of choked out the seed so that it was not fruitful. I don't want that to be my case. I don't want that to be your case as well. So these are things that uh, that Paul is mentioning to Titus, particularly with older men. And then he gets into talking about older women as well. They are to be reverent in behavior as their conduct. I think I mentioned before, I thought it was very interesting that we, in using this phrase, Reverend in conduct says it has a slight reference to dress, which I interpreted the Bible talks about dressed in his righteousness. I interpret that to mean that this this behavior should be like a a clothing or a covering for us, that our behavior is what people see when they look at us, and that behavior should be reverential and uh show the seriousness, I guess, of purpose in our hearts and our lives. And I, I want that to be my case. We're going to be looking at that a little bit more later on in another venue. But anyway, he goes on talking about malicious gossips. It's easy to talk about people. That's a word that uh, Diabolos said was used of Satan. And uh, the tongue, we talked about the tongue, and I'm not going to get into that, but the tongue is damaging. James talks about the destruction of the tongue and how powerful it is to influence things in the wrong way. So we want to control our tongue and not to be doing that. And he talks about older women. And I don't know that he's saying older women only have that problem, but perhaps that might be an area in which that could be uh, an area. So that, that's a word of warning from God's word to us. And then talks about being not being enslaved to much wine, not being, if you will, brought under the control or the addiction of wine. And then lastly, to be a teacher of what is good. And I suggested to you that teaching has a double aspect to it. One, we teach by instruction, but the second is you teach by example. And you've heard it said, and I don't know if this quote is an accurate quote, but I've heard it said that I would rather see a sermon lived than hear it preached, because the sermon that is lived is more powerful you understand what I'm saying? Than the sermon that is preached. 
because the example is behind it. And that, that's very true. The example is very important. And so there are the words that we've been looking at. And lastly, he says, encourage the younger women, which means you pour your life into somebody else. And we're going to get into that. Now we're going to be talking about younger women. I don't know how to start on that because this is an area that what the things that this text is talking about here, and I'm going to read that text to you, is one of the most attacked verses in our culture today uh, and has been for some time. But listen to listen to these words. It starts out by older women, likewise. We've already looked at this, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the younger women. And now here we go. Listen to what he says. Younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. And we're living in a day in which the opposite of that, I mean, the, the scripture is attacked in many areas in, in our culture today and many things we, we are, unlike marriage, for example, uh, the, the, the difference between man and a woman, those kind of things, a lot of stuff is being attacked, but women's liberation is a big one. And it's right on the forefront in which there's a lot of attack that is going on. This biblical standard uh, of what God says the role of the woman is. And I, I just remind you as we start looking at this, um, sometimes women will look at this. And if you're listening to my voice, you'll sit there and you'll say, well, you know, why is it that we have to be in submission to our husband? I mean, they're not better than we are. And. Uh, we're not, they're not more talented than we are, and so on, and that's all very true, very likely, in fact, in my case, it was the opposite, my wife was much smarter than I am, and I know that, and she was a very, very, very special girl, and I miss her a lot, but the fact is that God is the one that's on the throne, and not us, not culture, not society, and he has told us how we are to function so that society, and the church, and the family function, and there is always leadership and there's always conformity and every single person in this room and every single person that's listening to my voice you are called to be in submission in some way to some authority uh, according to the lord uh, there are many verses romans 13 is a good beginning point but all of us do that and we're not doing it because somebody else is smarter or better we're doing it because god said so and his word is the standard and if we violate that and we turn against it, we end up paying the price for that. And we end up suffering the consequences. So it has nothing so much to do with the thought that one is better than the other. And that we think of it that way many times in society. We think of that they're doing that because they're, but no, it's because God said this is the way it is. You got to have a standard. I mean, that's, that's the wisdom that the Lord has established, that there is leadership, there is administrative organizational structure and the things have to function and uh, if the marriage is a godly marriage and it, in the case of elaine and myself uh, i can't in my whole relationship with elaine i don't remember maybe one or two times in which we had a disagreement and it ended up by having saying well, we're going to have to do it this way i 99 of the time her decisions were better than mine and she had she displayed a lot more wisdom and so we and i 
learned that, and I listened. I, we, we would share and talk about things and discuss things back and forth. And uh, I don't I don't ever think, I really don't ever think that we were at really at odds about anything. I, I won't say I never got mad and displayed the flesh. And I won't say that she didn't get exasperated. But in the final analysis, we were together. And we were in harmony. And we were pulling, Lane used to say all the time, remember, I'm on your side, which tells you that there were times when she would disagree and she would say something. And frequently I would say, you know what, you're right. That's absolutely right. And, uh, and, and I appreciate you saying that, even though I, I was sharing with Rick earlier, I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but when I was in Germany in the Air Force, this was before I was saved, we got a new car. I got a new car, uh, new Javelin, American Motors. They don't make them anymore. But it was fire engine red, and I treated that car like it was a baby, even worse than red. And steam, steam would, because I had access to being able to, to steam clean the engine, keep everything immaculate, and I did. And after I had the car for maybe three or four months, I wrecked it. Didn't, didn't really a serious wreck, just bumped up front fender and stuff like that. And the first thing Elaine said when I came in was, I thought that the Lord was going to do something to that car. And now you can imagine what I felt about that when she said that. When your wife says that, that, that did not make me dance and real happy. But I was, I didn't really get, I, I just, I just let go. And But later on, I realized she was right because that car was like an idol for me, for me. And uh, so anyway, uh, sometimes women can do that. They can say things and I've counseled, I've sat down with husband and wife and I've told the wife, I said, listen, you don't have to have the last word every time. You can stop and, and let your husband say something and so on and so forth. And uh, you don't have to win the, the, the argument, but sometimes we do. We want to just keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back and have to have the last word. Pride comes into that and it comes in here as the Lord's instruction is for us and for the ladies in specific areas. Uh, and it kind of steps on our toes. Uh, the feminist movement has made inroads, even in the church today. Um, when I was at the King's College in Barclay Manor, we had one time they had a, um, they have visiting lectures. That's common in the college, a visiting lecture for different colleges. And that being a Christian co-educational liberal arts college, they had a, a Christian couple, a couple of women, and I say a couple, a couple of women who had written a book. And I don't remember uh, the title, but it had to do with uh, new wine for old wineskins or something like that. But it was what it was basically saying is that in passages like the one before us now, that this was not what God is saying. This was Paul's bias coming out of his religious Jewish upbringing, that his bias was coming out in his writings and that we have to reinterpret this or look at this passage and see not that this is what God is saying, but that this is what Paul in his religious bias is saying and that we want to kind of push that aside and see through that and realize that God really you know, does not, is not really taking a stand like it looks like. This is just the bias of the Apostle Paul. And I can remember sitting in that class uh, and, and uh, listening to them. And there were some pretty severe objections. And there were some women that were really upset with that, believe it or not. And I thought it was very interesting. And uh, But this, this does happen even in the church where there are these kinds of questions that people raise up 
And part of it is because talking about being liberated is a, a very nice sounding term to be liberated, to be broken away from shackles, that the old standard is repulsive and debilitating, that uh, the old standard uh, is puts us in bondage and that uh, we have no right to just stand up and say that you have to disobey the husband and the husband makes all kinds of statements and, and demands that are not sound and you have no right to do that. Um, the this, this distortion that um, goes with this standard goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, I think, when uh, in that passage where Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord predicted that this kind of rebellion would take place. Um, if you, I'm just going to read the verses, Genesis 3.16. It says, after the fall, the Lord said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Uh, in pain, you will bring forth children. And um, he goes on to say, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And this phrase has been interpreted to mean her physical and sociological and psychological desire will be to, to uh, her, have her husband sexually satisfy her needs and so on and so forth. But that's not the case because that desire was there before the fall. And it was not, it's not, it, it's, it's not a good interpretation of the passage. The same word is used in Genesis 4, 7 in a parallel passage where it's applied to Cain where the Lord says to Cain after he has uh, uh, been rejected for the offering that he made, and God said, you can do well by coming back and make the right offering. The Lord says to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, won't your joy be expressed? If you turn around and repent and do what's right, you'll be happy. Your joy, your face will show it. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire literally to control or dominate is for you. And you must master it. So that the same thing he's talking about with the woman after the sin, after they fell in the Garden of Eden, is what he's telling the woman is that your desire to control your husband, well, you'll be there and you'll want to do that. You'll want to dominate him. And that has taken place. That, that even takes place today over and over again where women want to do that. And, uh, and that's happened. I'm sure it's happened to me and it's happened to others. But uh, I'm, I just, I'm so thankful when I go through passages like this for the godly woman that the Lord placed in my side, she was infinitely a better woman than I deserved. She really was and is. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful. I, I, I miss her a lot and uh, miss the, the advantages. There's a lot of advantages. My life has changed drastically since the Lord took her home. And uh, there's just a lot of effect. This had ramifications in many areas. But I realize the value of somebody like this who's come alongside, who is a helper that corresponds to me and uh, that uh, she was, she was just really very, very, a very good compliment. And I appreciate that. And I can understand the value as Proverbs talks about in Proverbs 31, the excellent wife, the value of an excellent wife and the, the, the great asset that she, the great asset that she is. Uh, you've heard me say, and this is the truth. It's not a it's not a Bible verse, but I am convinced it's sound scripture. Is that the man holds within his hand the ability to make or break the family, and the woman holds in her hand, to a large degree, the ability to make or break her husband's vocation or her husband's calling. 
because she can support him or cut him down and she can belittle him. You see what I'm saying? And he has that, that responsibility of the family. He can forsake the family, as I know couples that are doing that. Men have done that. I know men that are doing that right now, that are forsaking their family for some kind of six-figure income, some kind of job. They're going to pay for that. That's going to be a sad thing that's going to happen because they're taking the first priority. The first priority is not just to make enough money. Money's big, but it's not the, the you want to be a father and you want to be a husband and you want to be a daddy. Um, Howard Hendricks told the story of a, of a young man that uh, in his Sunday school class who um, had a major turnaround in his life and he was talking to him and he asked him about his father and his family and the young man said there were two things that I remember most about my father and both of them had to do with him being on his knees. One, he was on his knees on a regular basis for us in prayer and number two, he often got on his knees to play with me and those two things and I, I thought that was really good to be involved in those kids and to put that effort in that time. It makes a difference, it really does. And it shows the importance because you, you your, your emphasis of, of time and the effort that you place is what reflects uh, their interpretation of what you value. And it's very important. So in this passage here, he talked about older women and he lays out some things. And the first thing he says is they are to love their Husbands, um, this is this. Uh, Paul is addressing and and uh, young married women. He's not he's not necessarily saying here, by the way, that all women are must be married. He's not saying that. In fact, there are times when it talks about First Corinthians talks about the fact that it's good for them to remain even as I am. It's not a bad thing to stay single. Uh, you can do more sometimes in the kingdom of God. Uh, I found uh, the absence of my wife being, in one sense, an enhancement that I have more time to study and, and I don't know how to say this, but be sort of loud or noisy in my prayer time and my study Bible reading and stuff like that. My cats put up with me sometimes with, with that. But to a large degree, I'm spending a lot of time doing what Lane used to do. And uh, I never really worried about what I was going to eat or fix or whatever, make the bed and stuff like that, which she was, you, she took good care of the house like that. But I, now I have to worry about those things. And so, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get your sympathy. I'm just telling you that I see the value of having a, a, a wife, a meet, a helper that corresponds to me. And so it's not saying there necessarily that it's God's will for everybody to be married. There are times when it, it, it works out really good. Um, but what we're having here is kind of a direction, the result, a picture of the influence of the women uh, that, are, that are presented here, younger women, and the older women are counseling them. The older women have greater wisdom, and so they can come alongside and, and, and try to help the younger women, and they counsel. One of the things they counsel them is to love their husbands. That's one of the first things. Uh, the older women have an advantage of seeing life and seeing uh, the end from the beginning, and uh, it makes a difference when you see that thing. I can, I can, uh, I don't like to share a lot of examples with people that I know, but I can remember um, one person in the church telling me that when the family members were out, this was Larry. <laughs> when, they, when the boys were out, they were supposed to be back at 11, and they were 11:15 uh, 
uh, Debbie was climbing the wall. Why are they not here? What's going on? What's happening? And Larry said, well, they, they probably had a problem or something like that. It's, it's, we're just different. We're made up different. And when they're, when they're not there right away, you worry, you're concerned. And, and why are you concerned? Because you love them. It's not because you don't chase God. It's because you love them and you don't want anything to happen to them. I understand that. And, but after the years, you look back and you gain wisdom. Sometimes you're able to, uh, to see life from a little bit more of, a, of an overview, from a higher altitude, maybe, and to understand it. And you can counsel these women. Plus, the older women have accumulated biblical knowledge, and they're able to, to, uh, to do that. Some, Proverbs says, I talked about Proverbs 31. It talks about the woman and encouraging young, younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. Proverbs says this, it says that the excellent wife is one who opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also praises her and says good things about her. And he's spoken well in the city streets or within the gates of the city by others. And so here's this, the, these older women that speak maturity, speak wisdom, uh, they teach good manners and respect. Uh, they uh, oversee, teach over, good oversight for the family. They work hard, they're appreciated there by the children, they're respected by their husbands. Uh, this, is, this is what older women do and they have that, you understand what I'm saying? They have that wisdom and they've gained that and they're able to add a lot to it. And that's, that says, and I don't know that we would say I mentioned and joking last time that we don't have any older women in church, just older men. But we do have some ladies that have that are a little bit, you know, the kids are out of the home now and stuff like that. But they can take younger women under their wings and have an influence in their lives. And I know that the girls that come here have not been coming, and I know that you've been praying about that, and we should pray about that. But that's just an area that you can help, and it's just a good thing to think about people's lives that you can influence. And they may not even be somebody that's actually in the church. Maybe somebody else that you have a chance to, to work with or whatever and have a good influence. Uh, you, we, the Lord puts people across our path all the time. And we have no way of knowing at the time that he puts them across our path, whether this is somebody that God wants us to work with or not. But the Lord can open that door. And if he does, and you can have a good influence, do it. And let the Lord use you in the life of somebody else because that somebody else is going to live forever and they may end up glorifying the Lord and be a, a very powerful influence for him as well. And even if they don't, it'll still help you to pour your life into somebody else and help me too. So that's, that's a good thing. So he says to love their husbands. Um, the word there that's used is not the word that we get from, from uh, agape. This is the word philos which has to do with kind of a strong, perhaps an emotional, maybe a friendly, affectionate statement. It's the same, same root word for both the love of husbands and love of the children. It's uh, showing that, in this case, it's showing a, a kindness, a love, an affection for, uh, and I, I don't like to do, I don't like to pit it against agape because when I do, then it makes it sound like agape love does not have emotion in it. And it does have emotion in it. But agape love is God doing what is best for us and not necessarily what we were seeking. For example, John 3, 16, uh, the scripture is clear that none of us by ourselves were seeking 
a redeemer, a savior, somebody to save us from our sin. We may maybe uh, wanted our sin, we like our sin, we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil and so on and so forth. We were not seeking for a savior, but God loved us enough to give us what we really needed and not what just we emotionally want. Here's a passage, though, that's saying that there is emotion behind this affection, that you love your husband, you love your children, you are emotionally attached to them, you care for them. And I know I'm not giving you something new. I know that that's already the case. I know that you do love them. I've seen that. I know that it's not, not some kind of new information, but it's, it's, a, it, it's important. The word agape then we might call Calvary love, if you will. And the word, uh, the word philos is this word try, that used for emotional content, if you will. Um, let me give you an illustration of how they're used. John 15. Um, Jesus says in, in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this. All right, now. That word love three times is connected with agape. It's agape love, that you love and you, you sacrifice and you decide to love. Even when we're not loved by this, God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. When we were sinners and we were at odds, we, we were not seeking God's sacrifice and God's love, but he did it anyway. But now in this passage here, this word love is, appears three times. A new commandment I give you, let you love one another just as I love you. Greater love is no man than this, a man laid down his life or his. The word friends is a translation of the Greek word philos, which is translated love in our passage. But here it's translated friends. It's translated friends three times uh, in this verse. That one would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So he's saying here that I've given you the love and the sacrifice, love one another. A greater love is this, no man lay down his life for it. Not only just people, but those that I care for, those that I'm pouring my life out for, that I am emotionally involved with. I'm being kind to you. I'm being friendly toward you. And so this is a word kind of, and, and, and I don't want to make it too complicated, but this is the word that she's using here, talking about love, loving relationships that exist between husband and wife, and it should be a loving relationship. It shouldn't be just a sterile. If you remember, I don't know if you saw, um, I don't like to use movies, but this is the uh, uh, Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music. You remember that movie? And the, uh, the husband, the guy that ends up being head of the family and they're getting married, he already had a bunch of kids. And he had those kids lined up and they would come up and they would stand like a military precision. He would blow the whistle. They would come in and line up every morning. You remember that? It was military precision. This, this is not simply this a sterile love. This is an emotional love. This is a good love. That was the kind of the difference between, if you will, between the love of Julie Andrews in the movie Sound of Music and the love of the father. The love of the father was military. He was a general and everything was precise, but she loved him and she'd go out riding with him and doing other, you understand what I'm saying? There was that emotional involved, involvement in it. And so that's important and that's a good thing. We're told uh, in Ephesians to husbands ought to love your wives. This is, we know this, husbands ought to love your wives 
This means sacrificial love. This means self-giving love. This means a volitional love, whether you feel like it or not. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Believe me, the church is not really lovely to the Lord, except in the sense that we have been enlightened and redeemed and saved and brought to him. Uh, but he, he loved his we the husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he did what? He gave himself up for the church. So, which is an example of how we, as husbands, are to give ourselves up for our wives so that he might sanctify, that is ever part, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he is not, he is not in this deal to exalt himself and to make himself look good before others. He is in this deal to lift her up, to love her, to provide for her, and to exalt her, if you will, uh, that he might present her as a church to himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In other words, it's, it's, she is to shine in a way that reflects his work in her life and his goodness to her. And uh, so that she might uh, be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. He who provides for and cares for her is actually caring for himself and doing what's good to help himself as well. And so uh, this is this is this is a far far reaching conflict uh, uh, ramification this this command and it affects this this passage of wives loving their husbands and loving their children the ramifications of that are far reaching in the church it's a it's a, a an obedience to the lord and to the lord's command and um, the result of this this love that the wife has for her husband and her children uh, has effect on people around them, people that watch, people that live the, live with them and see the response. It speaks powerfully. Sometimes that people will ridicule. Isn't that true with biblical truth? When you obey the word of God, and I've had people ridicule Elaine about that. Not very often, but I've, I've had that, known that. And they ridicule it. But it doesn't matter because you're taking a stand for what the word of God says. And when you take a stand for what the Word of God says, the Bible says you're not going to be ashamed. That's right. And so it's a good thing. Um, so uh, here's the, the, the wife loving her husband, loving her kids, sacrificial, love giving of her time, laying aside sometimes pride, um, failure to do this is sin. Failure to do that is sin before God. And it can bring a reproach. And it can result in difficulties um, that the Lord brings to teach us lessons. And so um, the scriptures are clear when it talks about the relationship we have. I like what Paul says in Philippians. This doesn't just talk about wives, but the whole church. But he says, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent, on one purpose, that's what I want to do. I want to have one purpose, and that is to glorify the Lord and build his kingdom. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in contrast, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. I don't do that very well. Do not merely look on your own 
personal interest, but also show that concern for the interest of others. That's a good statement. That's in Philippians 2, 2 through 4. And this is a reflection of love. It's a distinguishing characteristic. Matthew 22, Jesus is talking and he lists the commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That's love. And then the second and foremost commandment, this is repeated throughout the New Testament and throughout the Gospels, I guess it's seven or eight or nine times, which means it's important for emphasis. But the second, he says, the great, great, the second commandment is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So love the Lord and love your neighbor. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. This kind of love is the topic of 1 Corinthians 13. When in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians um, 13, he talks about, describes love and what love is like. And uh, that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 13 comes in a context. And so I want to show you that context and then we're going to be closing down uh, here. But in that context, 1 Corinthians 13 is arguing, is, is Paul is writing the Corinthian church and he's pointing out that they have been obsessed with some kind of showy spiritual gifts. And uh, he's arguing that they need to be more concerned with showing love is what he's doing. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 29, it says, are not all apostles? All, all are not all, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? What's he, what he's saying? He's saying that everybody is different. Not everybody's an apostle. Not everybody is a prophet. All are not teachers, are they? And so he's going on to say, everybody has a, everybody's a member of the body and each member of the body is unique. And you don't have to worry about why you're not this or that or the other. Be what God has called you to be. All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? Well, the answer to those questions, rhetorical questions, in every case, no, they don't. They're not all that way. Then he says, but you, earnestly desiring the showy gifts, but I show you a more excellent way. And that's literally what he's, he's saying. The, the, my translation said, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. But actually, the best way to translate that, I think, because it can do it either way, he's saying you have earnestly been desiring the showy gifts. You've been seeking after the gifts that are showy, the gifts that are that pat you on the back. But I'm going to show you a more excellent way. What is the excellent way? Next verse. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I have become a noising gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give my possession to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. No, we'll stop there. What he's saying is that you've been seeking these showy gifts, but I'm going to show you something better. What is it? It's love. It's God's love, biblical love. It's very, very important. John tells us that God is love. We ought to love one another because love is from God. We ought to care for one another. We ought to provide for one another because love is from God. And this is the command. Um, When Jesus was talking to Peter at the end of the sermon of the Gospel of John, he asked Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Remember? 
Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Each time Peter said, yes, yes, Lord, you know, I love finally the third time. He said, yeah, you know all things. You know, I love you. Care for you. I know that there are different words that are used, but it all comes down to, is your affection for me? Do you care for me? That's the motivation for ministry and service. And then he tells Peter, he says, you're going to, you're going to end up going where you don't want to go. You're going to be, he's telling about his death. How are you going to die? You're going to be tied up in a way that you're not going to like. And then after he finishes all of that, he says, but now I'm telling you, follow me. You follow me. This is where it's leading, but you follow me because you love me. You follow me. Put me first. That's the key. Putting him first is the key. Um, First Corinthians, uh, first, John 13 says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you love one another. By this, all men will know what, that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. And um, John 14 says, this is my commandment. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So the point is, and I'm going to stop here at this point. The point is that this love for the husband and love for the children is a very normal part of the Christian life to be fond of, as well as to provide for the welfare of those is very important. And it fleshes itself out, but it not only just makes somebody feel good, it has an influence in those around us. They can see it. People, when they come to the fellowship, if they can see us loving each other, it will stand out in their minds and they will realize it and they will know that they've been in the presence of the people of God because they love each other. It, it's fleshed out in their actions, in their lives, in their prayers, in their use of time and the things that, that matter. So um, we're going to get into looking at uh, loving their children. We'll do that next time. But um, I know I admit I moved sort of slow, but I think it's important to look at that and to see some of these things that we've been talking about this morning. Let's, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, help us to be committed first and foremost to you. Help me to be committed first and foremost to you. And I acknowledge that there are detours, and I have those frequently in my life, that get hold of my heart or distract my attention from you, and yet I know for a fact that nothing is more important than loving you and putting you first, and I ask you to help me to do that. I'm asking you to help us to do that, help us to really take you seriously in our lives. We don't want to be like the saints in the church at Ephesus that had lost their first love, and I just have to say that's an easy thing to do. We, we can be very straight on with some areas of doctrine, but yet you're not the first in our lives, and so I pray that you will help us all to put you first and to really walk close to you. And thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for the love that sacrificed, the love that went to the cross, the love that was willing to die for us even while we were yet sinners, the love that was willing to do what's best for us, what we needed, and not just let us treat you like a, a, a magic genie to get our way about something. Help us to be committed, totally committed, absolutely committed, relentlessly committed to you, not just now for time, but for all eternity. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. And thank you for the study that we've been looking at this morning. And I ask a blessing upon it to our hearts. 
We were looking this morning also at the words of Jesus and how people remembered them later on. Help us to remember these words. That's the unique thing about your, your truth is that it doesn't, uh, it isn't wasted. It may lie dormant in our minds, but then it'll come out and bear fruit later on. Help us to do that. Make us effective as your children, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.